The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 44. These past two weeks, Pastor De Bruin introduced us to the biblical understanding of reconciliation through the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We who trust in him have been reconciled to God. We have peace with him through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. For those of us who are in Christ, we have the privilege as his ambassadors bearing forth the ministry of reconciliation, extending the olive branch of the gospel to others who need to make peace with God through Christ. Well, this morning and next week, we continue this theme by searching the Old Testament for examples of the ministry of reconciliation working out in the lives of God's people. This morning, we consider perhaps the greatest story of family reconciliation in the Bible, Joseph and his brothers. Next week, we'll consider how God's reconciling grace reaches beyond racial barriers to transform the life and the heart of one of Israel's worst enemies, Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. We pick up in our passage this morning at the climax of Joseph reconciling a very painful and difficult relationship with his ten brothers who had sold him into slavery. You'll remember how Joseph went down into Egypt and against all human odds rose to the greatest position of power and authority at the right hand of Pharaoh himself. God had given Joseph remarkable abilities to interpret dreams, to administer justice. Well, due to circumstances orchestrated by the Lord, Joseph's brothers come down to him in Egypt, destitute by famine and desperate for food. Joseph wisely tests them to see what is in their hearts. He puts them in a fix, making it appear that their brother Benjamin has stolen a silver cup, threatening slavery. But Joseph giving his brothers an opportunity to betray yet another brother, their youngest, Benjamin, in order to save their own skins. Well, in a remarkable turn of events, and in a radical change of heart, we see Judah coming to plead for their brother, Benjamin, offering to take his place. So we pick up here in Genesis 44, verse 30. It is Judah pleading before Joseph in reference to their father and their brother Benjamin. So now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. 
Your servants are bringing the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of his, this boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth... And the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Imagine yourself at a funeral. Flowers have been donated in memory of the departed. A line stretches across the room as family and friends gather to offer words of comfort to the bereaved. The organ begins the prelude, indicating that the service is about to begin. You find yourself sitting in worship with people you don't normally sit with on Sunday. Hopefully, you are praising God over a life that has now entered his eternal presence. You are reminded of your mortality. Funerals have a tendency to put everything into perspective. At some point, it occurs to you that every single one of your family members and friends gathered will reach the same 
place. Funerals are a reminder of eternity. Each of us is but a step away. You may be ready, but are they? And are you ready to depart from this life before you have had the opportunity to have your say with those that you love? As our text begins, Joseph and his brothers are still estranged one another. Joseph's brothers are still in the dark about who he is, who this mysterious man is, and what had happened to their brother Joseph, assuming he was dead. In the previous chapters of Genesis, we see that these brothers are repeatedly haunted by their grief and guilt over their crime. By the end of this passage, these brothers are reconciled. Funerals, weddings, reunions, and other family events can be occasions of great conflict or opportunities for reconciliation. Sadly, families are often divided in this fallen world. How will we share the inheritance? How will we take care of mom and dad as they grow older? Many have suffered abuse at the hands of a family member. And who among our families is immune to some measure of sibling rivalry or marital discord? It seems that this endless cycle of grudges and resentments go on and on. Thankfully, God's word promises hope for families, a true and lasting peace. The very final words of the Old Testament promise coming of one who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The Hebrew Bible promises the coming of a peacemaker who knows how to heal wounded hearts, who mends the brokenness and families. Our text this morning cast a long shadow in this direction in the lives of our two main characters, Judah and Joseph. These men help us to see Jesus and the power of the gospel that brings reconciliation to hurting families. In our text, Judah is portrayed in a favorable light. And this was not always the case. As a young man, he is presented roguish and ruthless. We see his self-centered greed when he first speaks up on Joseph's behalf. He prevents his jealous brothers from putting Joseph to death, but only to seize an opportunity to gain wealth and sell Joseph as a slave to a band of traders heading down to Egypt. Shortly after this event, Judah leaves home. And we would guess against his father's will as he marries a Canaanite woman and quickly raises up three sons. It would seem that Judah is fleeing in an attempt to cover up his guilt. The family of God is disintegrating and falling away from one another. But the purposes of our sovereign God are quietly at work to reunite and restore this broken household. Yet first, the Lord causes Judah to pass to the crucible of life. In our passage this morning, we see Judah in middle age, a widower, 
bereaved of two sons who were struck down in the prime of life. Judah has compassion on his father. He can identify with his pain, for he too has suffered the same loss. We see at least in three ways in our text how Judah demonstrates real maturity in leadership. The first is that Judah learns to care for somebody other than himself. In verse 31, we see the driving motivation behind his desperate plea to Joseph. Judah is concerned not only for Benjamin's safe return for Benjamin's sake, but also for the welfare of his father. He insists that if the boy does not return with them, their father will die. Judah would rather surrender his life than bring additional pain to his aged father. A second way that we see Judah's growing leadership is his willingness to bear the blame. He had made a pledge to his father to guarantee Benjamin's safe return. He said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. It is the nature of children to shift the blame. Unfortunately, many adults do not outgrow this tendency. Siblings bicker and blame one another for past faults that are never to be forgiven nor forgotten. Adult children are just that. When they refuse to let go of petty griefs against their parents, it seems very apparent that Judah and his brothers have let go of their resentment towards their father who had done wrong by showing favoritism to Joseph by his willingness to take the blame. Judah demonstrates that he places the welfare of his family above himself. Well, then Judah's worst fears are realized. As Benjamin is threatened with enslavement, the very same hardship that Joseph had to suffer because of Judah's heartless greed. So we find a third sign of Judah's reconciling work. He offers himself as a substitute so that Benjamin can return safely home again. Judah considers his life forfeit. He is guilty. He is a dead man already. Judah, in many ways, is Christ-like by offering himself up in Benjamin's place. But there is a great irony here. Benjamin is innocent, at least as far as his crime is concerned. Judah is guilty. He can no more offer up his life in place of Benjamin than you and I can offer up ourselves in the place of Jesus. No, the path of reconciliation cannot be accomplished by Judah's plan. It is a noble offer. Judah is a good example to us, especially for those of us who have a past trying to rectify wrongs done. But Judah cannot pay this debt. Someone else must bear this cost. Someone else must be willing to do the difficult thing necessary to secure true reconciliation. The true reconciler here is Joseph. We learn several things from Joseph's story about the nature of genuine 
reconciliation, we see first that reconciliation is a very personal affair. In verse 1, Joseph has all of his attendants leave him so that he can make himself known to his brothers in private. Then we see that reconciliation is a very emotional affair. In verse 2, Joseph weeps so loudly that this private matter becomes public knowledge. His pent-up emotions, buried under years of denial, years of self-protection, of ladder climbing, of growing responsibility, come bursting forth. Unsurprisingly, Joseph's brothers are terrified. Like a deer caught in the frozen stare at oncoming headlights, they are witless, unable to move or say anything. And here we see that reconciliation is also a compassionate affair. After collecting himself, Joseph takes one of the most gracious steps in the Bible. Rather than chastise or threaten his brothers, he beckons them to come close to him, not to harm them, but to embrace them. We can only imagine the hesitant fear by which these ten brothers sheepishly approach their brother Joseph. Notice that Joseph does not ignore their crime. He calls a spade a spade. They had sold him into slavery. How would you handle that? Perhaps you have suffered harm at the hands of a family member. Perhaps you have fantasized about how you might get even. What horrid things have gone through your own sin-sick mind or come out of your mouth in an effort to medicate that pain and hurt deep down? If I could only embarrass him, put him in his place, humiliate her, expose him, show other people what a fraud she really is. If we're honest with ourselves, we must confess these things are true in our hearts. And we were reminded from the word of God that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jesus warns us to not allow hatred to fester in our hearts and so that we essentially commit murder against others in our hearts. Paul exhorts us to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Well, whatever revengeful thoughts Joseph may have nursed on over the years, he does not act on them here. He does not desire his brothers to grovel before him. He does not heap upon them a guilt trip. After inflicting the wound of confrontation, he quickly applies the healing balm of forgiveness without even saying the words, I forgive you. Joseph demonstrates forgiveness telling his brothers to not be angry with themselves. Then he lets them in on a secret, the secret of the redeemed who understand the mercy of God and the riches of his grace. Joseph, now wise and mature, understands that this entire ordeal had come from the hand of God as a part of a greater plan. Joseph's suffering paled in comparison to the grand scheme of God to save 
many lives. The Egyptians, the greater Mediterranean world, and to preserve and restore the fallen, broken house of Jacob. Joseph is able to extend grace to those who hurt him because he had a God-sized perspective on life. In verses 7 and 8, Joseph repeats this strong assertion that it was not they who sent him into Egypt, but God. The story of Joseph shows us that reconciliation requires a work of God. Only God can orchestrate circumstances in such a way to bring healing and restoration to hurting families. Only God can change the hearts of men so that we are able to do the hard work of reconciliation. We also see here that reconciliation requires sacrifice. Someone must pay the price. Someone must bear the offense in order for true reconciliation to happen. You see, reconciliation is not just a matter of words, simply saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness is costly. It's a bitter pill to swallow. One has to give up his or her rights. Judah was willing to give up rights to offer his life up for the sake of Benjamin. He was willing to be Joseph's slave, to pay this debt, this offense committed. But there was a greater right that had to be given up. And Judah could not bear it. For him to become a slave, he would still be alienated from the family. He would still be cut off from the fellowship of the family. Joseph will not let Judah bear this cost. Joseph must bear this cost alone. Only he can pay this debt. Letting go of the bitterness and the mistrust. Only he can do what is necessary to reconcile this family, to bring healing, so that there is no more division, and so that nobody will have to be punished for this crime. Only Joseph can make atonement for his enemies, his own brothers who had committed treachery against him. You and I are like Judah, trying to pay our own way with God. And it is a very commendable thing to do, and yet Christ will have none of it. Like Joseph, Christ had to bear the cost of the offenses committed by brothers and sisters. Jesus suffered the penalty of God's holy wrath on sinners, our treachery, our treason, our betrayal, all of our lies, our cheating, our envy, our greed, our self-centeredness, our hatred towards our own family members. Now, rebellion against our maker is all covered by one sacrifice of atonement. 
The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 says that Jesus had been made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. The Egyptians referred to Joseph as their savior. And so he was. He preserved the people of God. He saved the lives of many, the whole world, so to speak. But Joseph is not our savior. He is just a man like you and me. He and Judah are examples to us, but that is all they are. Sometimes I wonder, what sustained Joseph through those long and lonely years? How is it that he did not crumble under the weight of bitterness and self-pity and anger? I believe that we find a clue back in Genesis 39. When Joseph arrives in Egypt, it says no less than three times, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph practiced the presence of God. God's grace carried him. We see another indicator here in chapter 45. Joseph longed to see his father again. You see, his father loved him. Joseph's identity was bound up in his relationship with his father. The very first thing that comes out of Joseph's mouth when he reveals his identity to his brothers is the question, is my father still living? In verses 9 and 13, he goes on to give his brothers an urgent mission, return home, fetch my father, and come back to Egypt. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent away from his father's presence to endure hardship and suffering for our sake. Like Joseph, the Gospels repeat over and over how the power and presence of God were with Jesus. Everything he did prospered. He was a blessing to many. Like Joseph, Jesus bore the cost that we could not bear. We are the traitors who made the work of reconciliation necessary to begin with. Like Joseph, Jesus longed to return to his father. He had a God-sized view of life and considered these momentary sufferings worth it. Jesus was so identified with his father that he was able to endure the hard work of reconciliation. Unlike Joseph, Jesus is more than an example. He is the savior of the world who unites, preserves, and restores all of God's children. a God-sized perspective on life that exalts the lordship of Christ and not our own pains and hurts enables us to endure the hard work of reconciliation. Being identified with 
the Father's purpose, helps us to be agents of reconciliation in the lives of other people. Just think about how Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers was a witness to the Egyptians. They already admired him for his God-given powers and his remarkable integrity. But now they see something about the nature of this God. This God is not vindictive or capricious like the gods they were familiar with. This God cares for people. He saves people's lives. He heals the brokenhearted. He seeks and saves the lost and restores broken families. This reputation of God hinges on our work at reconciliation. Friend, whatever you are facing in your own family, division over an inheritance, past grudges, marital disharmony, difficulties with your children, may you draw on the strength of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Take the first step. Secure in the Father's love. Longing with the heart of God who desires all of his children to be reconciled. And may the words of Jesus be on the lips of your kin at your own funeral. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the peacemaker the one who has reconciled us to God. We who were once enemies, children of wrath, are now sons and daughters of the living God through faith in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to have a God-sized perspective on life, to endure hardship, and to be your agents, ministers of reconciliation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.